All right, we are here. Welcome to another edition of the Friday Forecast. I'm Robert Phoenix, and um, it's uh, 311. I'm going to put these in in anticipation of our guest, who I hope be arriving. I'm not talking about Rosie. She's uh, Rosie's already here. Um, I sent out a, a, an email to her. And hopefully, Holly Seeliger will be joining us fairly soon. I sent out the wrong time for the email. Are you going to be my guest today? Huh? You going to be my guest? You've come a long way from that bedroom with uh, you and Jasper, your bed buddy. When's he showing up? Uh, let me just uh, send a little quick little text here to Steve-O. Door by the door. Let's see what we got here. Three. Yeah, I know. Give me one sec. Yeah, I know. Yes. You have a lot to say today. Just uh, checking in with our potential guest. All right. So we're going to hang out here. How is everybody? Are you uh, surfing the chaos? Woke up this morning and... Uh, rents.com was not there. <laughs> so that's how the day started. Of course, Jeff Rents has been an aggregator of alternative news for a while. I remember connecting with Jeff Rents's website, I think starting around 1996, maybe 96, 97. Right around the same time I started to listen to Art Bell. So I was getting dosed. And Jeff had the best alternative uh, news website that was available uh, at that time. So um, this morning woke up and it was like this domain name has been parked. It was, it, it was weird. It was like he either hadn't paid his bill for his web domain or I was Mandela affected or something. It was very strange. Uh, so that was how the day started. And then later, um, I went to my YouTube app on my phone. And it's back now. But for a while, I didn't have any access to YouTube on my phone. It was weird. So there's been some strange glitchy shit going on uh, with the start of the day. And of course we are in strange and glitchy times. Let me just do this really quickly. Okay. All right. Um, let me check in with you guys. See where you're at. We've got uh, Jamie. What's going on, Jay and Joan, Jay and Jay. Kelly B. What's going on, Kelly? Ashanti Edwards, long time no see. How are you? 
There's Ryan. There's Michael, sister New Garrett Brooks from Chile, New England. Hopefully our guest will arrive from Chile, New England. She's up in Maine. Um, WC Ray, Robin, what's going on, Robin? Platform number three, engaged. Absolutely. Beth Berry showing up Kabuki Theater, Sony. Marie MacArthur. Hi, Marie. We've got Hucklebuck. Buck 411. Gucci to goats. No one you know. Jasper's Matthew today. Yeah, Jasper, that is not Jasper's Matthew. Rents has been a target for, for a while. Surprised they didn't take him down before now. Hope is just expired domain name. They usually reserve them for a few days before they let it go. I, yeah, that's probably what it was about. And Rents had he had some really strange periods. Really, really strange periods. Um, because he was the go-to site for a long time. And then he had that accident, which he believes was triggered by some kind of like particle beam or some kind of scalar array, which, by the way, I firmly and totally believe is possible because... I experienced something kind of similar in my life and he's not the only one. So the story is that Jeff was driving down the road and something knocked him and forced him off the road. And, um, and then he, I, I don't even think he get out of his car, maybe crawled out of his car. And then they had to, uh, you know, do some surgery around long recovery. And when he came back, he was, not quite the same. And, and I, I even felt like for a while that he had either sold the website or the web portal because it no longer said rents.com at the top. It said alt news. And it almost felt like he'd gone through some kind of a drudge report kind of uh, transformation, which is weird. And the, even the, the 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 links were different. The news links were different. So, yeah, it, it was. And then he went through a real um, Trump hate period. He went through a major Trump hate period. And I, I couldn't listen to him or, like, you know, watch a lot of his. I, no, it's more listen. You don't really watch Jeff. You listen to him. I couldn't really listen to him during that period. And every now and then he would have some good guests on like Mitchell, uh, Mitchell Henderson is really, really good. The left hook. That guy's really good. I would enjoy Mitchell. I like Gerald Salente. A lot of people think he's, you know, kind of a, you know, a performer and, and Gerald is a bit of a performer. Like you can tell he is. I like Gerald. Uh, I'm not sure he's always right, but I, but I like him. And I like the fact that he calls people out. And he does it in a very colorful way, mealy mouth, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. So he does have some good, he also has terrible guests on the show. Like there are people he has on a show, I'm, I'm just like, I can't. Debbie Kid, it's like, I couldn't listen to Debbie Kid and hear all of her stories about teaching uh, Mexican kids at a school somewhere here in Texas and her dogs. It was not very interesting. 
Um, so the guest side of things, the radio side of things became less interesting for me as well. But then once Trump left, he started to have a different point of view and the site kind of returned to its relevance, especially the news items. Um, so, you know, I go there from time to time still and, and look thing. and he's been pretty good on the Ukraine stuff. He's had these exclusive video streams from Russell Bentley in uh, Donbass for, for what the last four or five years. And Russell Bentley's a Texan that has been in Donbass and kind of covering, well, not kind of, he has been covering the uh, the, the, the civil war that's been going on there. It's been a, an, insur an insurgency from Western Ukraine into Eastern Ukraine. And that region really wanted to be a part of Russia. It's, I mean, they speak, the, uh, the majority of the people there speak the, their mother tongue, which is Russian. So, you know, they're more inclined to go to, to that side versus the other side of that weird river that cuts right through the, the center of uh, Ukraine. Um, yeah, so he's been there and he's been covering the shelling and the carnage and uh, a lot of the destruction that's been going on in that region. And of course, nobody ever talks about it. It never gets on CNN. It doesn't get on uh, any of the you know, the uh, global, you know, rights or global peace watch foundations or organizations. It doesn't uh, it doesn't go there, right? But it did go on rent, so you could see that this thing has been going on for a long time. But only when it becomes politically expedient do they begin to craft the narrative, and that narrative being that. Oh, it's the Western Ukrainians. They're the ones that are being exploited. They're the ones that are under duress. And now I'm reading about all these refugees that are being shipped out of there. Like they, this is a very interesting twist and wrinkle to what's going on in Kiev and Western Ukraine. They're essentially um, eliminating the population, they're relocating people. Why is that? Why are they relocating people? Well, is it because there's a war going on? Well, eh, maybe. Or maybe they're relocating people because they want to repopulate that part of the world with a different group of people. Maybe that's what's going on. And if you look at who the architects of this whole disaster are they come from that part of the world you know i was covering the kagans um this past week on the 15 minutes of flame show and the kagans you know they're the kagans and the potteritzes are all from that part of the world either lithuania or ukraine and there was a guy uh who went by the last name of kaganovich and he was Stalin's right-hand butcher. And this guy, Kaganovich, was responsible for the famine in Ukraine, known as the Holomador. And Kagan is an abbreviated version of Kaganovich. 
So the the butcher of the Holomador uh, theoretically is is part of this bloodline because that's exactly what happened with Kagan. They 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 truncated the name, so instead of Kaganovich, it became Kagan. So these are the same people that are from that area originally and they returned to that area and they returned to that area in 2014 when Victoria Newland, AKA Victoria Noodleman, who is the wife of Robert Kagan, AKA Robert Kaganovich, when she went in and did a color revolution, although I think at that time they had already done the color. So they had to call it something else, the Euromaidan or Eurobaid, whatever you want to call it. And that was it. 2-22-2014, Yanukovych is gone. And then they have a new regime that comes in. And that's where it all started. And of course, Victoria Newland is part of the neocon regime, right? She is a big player. And I covered a lot of this this last week. And I went into more of their world um, yesterday. And it's a, it's a totally bizarre world because a lot of them have these roots as being communists, like Norman Poderitz, um, who they're like three main families, Kagan family, the Poderitz family, and the Crystal family. Those are the three main families of the neocon umbrella. And you have sort of the, these uh, seminal figures who are like the fathers of the neocon movement, Irving Crystal, Norman Potteritz, and um, uh, William Kagan, who is Robert, Robert Kagan's father, and uh, Jeffrey Kagan, who's his brother, who they both do the same thing. They're both involved in regime change and uh, hardcore neocon uh, agendas, which are kind of Zionistic. I mean, they've got that hard Zionistic, you know, Likudnik edge. So I, I went down the rabbit hole and I started to um, really look at who these people are, where they came from. Potteritz is an interesting case. And maybe I'll play a segment of that interview because I don't know if Holly got the time uh, crossed up. Uh, so... So I don't know if, because uh, I sent out, I, uh, um, I sent out uh, a uh, an email. I had the wrong time for the meeting, so it happens every now and then. Anyway, I hope she got the new emails and will be coming back. Rosie, I know, I know, you're stressed out. Rosie, Rosie gets stressed out every now and then. She needs comforting. Where's your buddy? All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to play a little clip here that I discovered and it's um, Norman Potteritz and his wife, Midge Dector. And what's interesting about these neocon families is that the husband and the wife are both in the same like rubric writing publishing, speaking, teaching, fellowships, foundations. They both do the same thing. 
They're both intellectuals across all these families. In many cases, both the husband and the wife are signatories on the letter that supports the project for the new American century. Um, they both come from other figures, you know, mothers and fathers who seem to be really entrenched in this socialist Trotskyite mentality. And they all have kids and their kids are involved in the same thing and their kids and their kids' wives are involved in the same thing. So it's incredibly nepotistic and it, it, it's all in the family. It's a family business. So yesterday I came up with the uh, name Walmart instead of Walmart. So they're, they're, the, they're the Walton version of war. Now, when you get to Potteritz, and, and what's interesting about the neocons is that they go from being kind of these radical socialist liberals, and especially Potteritz, into becoming these rabid, foaming, hardcore conservatives. And another term for uh, neocons is paleoconservatives. And if you've ever watched the movie, The Big Lebowski, the John uh, Goodman character, Walter Sobchak, is based upon John Milius, who is one of these crazy, gun-toting, uh, wild paleoconservatives. And John Milius has a very hard time integrating they, they like him in Hollywood because he writes great scripts but they don't like him in Hollywood because his politics are just so far to the right they're extremely far to the right and it's Milius of course who gives us Red Dawn and what what happens in Red Dawn well it's this fantasy of these you know these uh Boy Scouts, for lack of a better term, they're teenagers. And they form a group called the Wolverines. And who do they stave off? They stave off a Russian invasion. And they wind up defeating the Soviets. And that's part of the weird thing with the neocons is that they kind of have it in for the Soviets. And people like Richard Pearl, he shows up. Um, in the 80s during the Bush administration, Reagan administration. And he's kind of a hardline anti-Soviet. And if you look at American-Soviet relationships, they were completely entangled. And you had all these internationalist um, businessmen who were just shelling out money to uh, industrialize the Soviet Union. They, they, paid for the Bolshevik revolution. And this is where it gets really weird, okay? Because the Bolsheviks are not necessarily Stalinist, but they, they, they flip the script and then they use uh, Lenin and Marx as their organizing principle to run Russia from that point forward. So the Bolsheviks are engaged in these revolutionary activities, and then they they use the uh, the the this model, which is anti-capitalist theoretically, but it's really not. 
because as Anthony Sutton pointed out over a period of what, 20 years, 25 years, six books, deep research that the United States was working with both the, the Nazis and the Bolsheviks now turned communists. So the Amer major American corporations built them both up. So they were like, okay, well, you know, we'll see who wins. And ultimately they threw down behind the Soviets because that's who Roosevelt wanted to win. They also wanted to control the industrial and commercial space because they didn't want to have any competition. And Russia's incredibly large. So if you look at corporations in America coming out of World War II, Western Europe is devastated. Look, the manufacturing, not all of it, but a lot of it in Germany has been destroyed. France was never really a great manufacturing company pre-World War II. They're not really that much of a, a threat to the manufacturing base in the United States. Um, the manufacturing base in Italy, not great. Ger uh, England, a little bit better. But really, the, the, the main manufacturers uh, at that time were Germany and Russia. Russia was actually pretty good. Russia produced, under the, the czar, produced two cars. Like, they had their own cars. And when the Soviets took over, they didn't really produce anything of note car-wise. They had the Trabant, but those were parts that they had um, kludged and accrued from other uh, automobile manufacturers and the Trabant's a piece of shit. It's a terrible car. So the Soviets really couldn't build anything. However, the, uh, the previous regime under Alexander could, and they had engineers and they had uh, mechanics and they had all the people that they needed to run the factories. But once Stalin and Lenin took over, they started killing them because they were smart and they didn't want anybody to run a counterinsurgency. So you either left those factories and got the hell out of there or you were killed. So now you have these factories that were abandoned for the most part, nobody knew how to use them. And that's where the Americans come into play. They're like, okay, well, we can help you. And so what they're doing is they're trying to control the post-World War II industrial space and economy. They don't really want any competition. And that's why there's this collusion between the United States and the USSR. They're like the farm team. So you can see that it starts with these Bolsheviks who have this revolutionary spirit. They're Khazarians, by the way. They're from that part of the world. Ukraine is technically where Khazar used to be, the Khazarian Empire. That and a little bit south, Georgia, Lithuania, it's all kind of up in there. Uh, so that's who these people descend from. They're, they're, they're Khazars. And, uh, but, but then, right, Trotsky leaves, he goes to Mexico with the idea of starting a revolution in Mexico. And he's going to connect with Diego Rivera, who is an intellectual. And this is what they like to do. They like to connect with intellectuals so that the intellectuals can promulgate their ideas and ideologies. So they do that. And, um, but they don't do it to its fulfillment because 
Trotsky is killed. And then you have all these Trotskyites and they come to the United States. And um, that's where the neocons come into play. So they show up in New York. There's a group of them that shows up in Chicago. I think, I think William Crystal comes out of Chicago, Irving Crystal comes out of Chicago. But so they take up this Trotskyite Bolshevik cause. You know, they start waving the flag. There's the outdoor cat, Max. Wow. So then what happens? They change their stripes. They go from being these dyed-in-the-wool communist revolutionaries to becoming these hardcore conservatives. Now, what's interesting is that they will tout these conservative values. And they will tout things like free. In fact, I even have a quote here. Let me show you this to you. This is uh, from Gertrude Himmelfarb, whom I believe is Irving Crystal's wife. And again, th these women, they're incredibly prolific writers. Now, she took on Victorian England. And she kind of rewrites this history of Victorian England and recasts it in a kind of a more working class context. So this is her quote, as liberty of thought is absolute, so is liberty of speech, which is inseparable from the liberty of thought. Liberty of speech, moreover, is essential not only for its own sake, but for the sake of truth, which requires absolute liberty for the utterance of unpopular and even demonstra demonstrably false opinions. Now, this quote would wind up really becoming the linchpin for the neocon or the paleoconservative ideology. And you could even throw in like these third generation paleoconservatives who don't have any bloodline connection, as far as I know, to these three families, but they are the political and spiritual inheritors of their work. And I'm talking about people like Dave Rubin, um, uh, the, uh, yes, uh, the, the, Wein the Weinsteins uh, from, uh, from Oregon, uh, who else? Sam Harris, Ben Shapiro. So th this group, uh, Mike, uh, what's his name? Cernovich. Like they are the spiritual and political inheritors of the neocon paleoconservative tradition. These are the ideas that theoretically they assemble around. But ultimately, they're kind of atheistic. They, they, they don't really have the kind of the Christian mind meld that you'll find in more quote unquote traditional conservative American people like um, what's his name? Like William F. Buckley to some degree is kind of like that. Although he's a Jesuit, I wouldn't call him necessarily Christian, but there is that kind of Christian overlay that, that the American conservatives have. But that, that quote says it all, right? It's like you read that and go, oh yeah, of course. Of course, that makes total sense. But then 
when you look at how some of these people are, how do I say this, um, cast or classified, they will take issue with your casting or their classification, your classification. So for instance, Midge Dector, who is the wife of Norman Potteritz, who I'm going to show you in a moment, there was a guy who basically said, oh, look, you know, the, isn't it interesting how uh, the head of the neoconservative movement always tends to happen to be Jewish intellectuals? And she scolds him and brands him as being anti-Semitic. So th it's this weird double standard. Yeah, I mean, it's good that these ideas are being, uh, you know, enunciated and declared as being the, the kind of the foundation, the linchpin of what they believe in. But is it really what they believe in? Or is it a value that's really absolute? I don't believe it is. Because once you question them on certain things, then all of a sudden, this idea that free speech should be absolute is no longer an absolutism. It becomes way more subjective. So it's free for them, but it's not necessarily free for other people. And even when you get into somebody like Jordan Peterson, who again is an ideological descendant of these people, that quote right there is right out of Jordan Peterson. And I'll, and I'll read the final part, right? Um, I'll read it again. As liberty of thought is absolute, so is liberty of speech, which is inseparable from the liberty of thought. Liberty of speech, moreover, is essential not only for its own sake, but for the sake of truth, which requires absolute liberty for the utterance of unpopular and even demonstrably false opinions. Peterson would agree with that 100%. 100%. But if you were to bring certain things up with Jordan Peterson and try to broach certain ideas and truths that might be proven to be demonstrably false or even unpopular, he would have a really hard time with some of those truths. So it's fascinating how they're able to you know, craft this model that works for them, but doesn't always work for everybody else. Um, now, Potteritz, I'm going to get into this Charlie Rose interview, is this very controversial figure. And he writes this uh, essay, which is, I think was a short book. It's kind of hard to find it in its full, fully flushed out form. It's called uh, my Negro problem and yours. And it has to do with how he was raised and who he was raised around. And his thesis in this book is that there's this idea that intellectuals grew up in elite neighborhoods and elite atmospheres. And as a result of that, did not have to deal with the um, street level vicissitudes and aggression of the black community and the black experience. And Potteritz kind of grew up around it and he didn't like it. He got his ass kicked, I think. And, and I think that that group 
made his life very difficult. And so what he did is he wrote this book and said, hey, look, we got a problem here. We got a problem with this group of people, with their socioeconomic status, and how they work out their aggression around it. And so he writes this very unpopular book, which is contrary to what the, it's actually a long essay, which is contrary to what the liberal relationship with that group was. And that liberal relationship is also part of this mindset that guess what emerges from that part of the world. They emerge from Poland, Lithuania, Ukraine, parts of Russia, and they comprise the neoliberal group. They're the group that's engaged in social revolution, but the social revolution looking more like the social revolution that ultimately has its um, end game in communism. And so what they'll do is they'll use a group like the underclass that he's talking about, and they'll weaponize the underclass. And they'll weaponize the underclass by giving them all these so-called social privileges, liberal social privileges, and excusing them for their bad behavior. This is, and we can see this happening now. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Like we're seeing this model happen now. And I can give you uh, one example. And Jason Whitlock talks, talks about this a lot. But when Jawan Howard, who was the coach of the uh, Michigan, University of Michigan basketball team, the, uh, the Wolverines, it was probably about three or four weeks ago, he got into a beef with the coach from the University of Wisconsin. And it was, it was after the game and Jawan Howard was like not really p- practicing good sportsmanship. And he gets into this beef with this coach and it has to do with the handshake line. And the next thing you know, Jawan Howard is like getting into a fight with a, a coach, the assistant coach for Wisconsin. Then the players get into a fight. And what Jason Whitlock breaks down with this whole thing is that Jawan Howard and a group of people inside of the black community have been simultaneously angered by social injustice, i.e. George Floyd, um, Ahmaud Arbery, right? You, Jacob Blake, you know, the cast of characters. So they're angered by social injustice. They're enabled by Black Lives Matter. They see what goes on with the riots of 2020 in the summer of Floyd. And they also see that for the most part, there's not a lot of persecution that takes place. So there's this really interesting kind of system of enabling and reward and Jason calls it the grievous indu- the, the grievance industrial complex, which allows a group of people to have a grievance. And sometimes those grievances are distributed in a, a violent manner. But on the other hand, it's like, well, we're not going to prosecute them because if we prosecute them, 
then we'll persecute them. It's kind of like what they've set up in San Francisco with um, this law that says, well, you can steal up to $995 and it's just a misdemeanor. You get a ticket for it. And so you see these people go into Walgreens and just empty the shelves. That's, that's enabling, right? And then what happens if you go to stop them? And by the way, when I say these people, I'm saying the people that do this, unfortunately, the, the majority of the people meet a particular social demographic. I've seen the videos, not all of them, but a lot of them. And then if you try to stop them, guess what happens? You're the person that gets in trouble, right? You're the person that winds up getting arrested and losing your job because you're a security guard hired by Walgreens. And hey, maybe you're going to stop them from taking out close to a thousand dollars worth of inventory. That's the Skinner box game. And this is what Potter is talking about. Like he's talking about this thing that's happening during the sixties. And then clearly it's happening now. So he's kind of ahead of the head of the curve on this. And he writes this long essay and he's bringing up this social condition, which is problematic, but his solution to the social condition is bizarre. It's like, well, the only way that we can really solve this is if we make sure that the races mix and that there is no black and there is no white. And so we'll have this, you know, coffee colored, this latte colored race, and there will be no such thing as racial descent. Like, really? Okay. Well, why don't we start with your kids? Let's start with your kids. Let's just start the intermarrying and the interbreeding process, process with your kids, Norman. So it's this really controversial book at the time because it's not stating the, the party line, which that party line was created and stated with the creation of the NAACP, who, of course, happened to be Lithuanian, Polish, Ukrainian, relocated, Jewish intellectual, socialist communists. They're the ones that start the NAACP. We talked about this. And who do they get? They get W.E.B. Du Bois, who is this very light-skinned Black American. I'm not, I'm not even sure he's born in this country. I'd have to double-check that. But he's their guy, right? And they get a few other, you know, very light-skinned Black Americans. And they bring them into the fold and they create the Boule Society. And they're the ones that start this whole ball rolling, right? And it, and it starts off with change and progressivism and the cause and community organizing. It's always about change. And there's no resolution to change. What is change? Where are you going? What are you trying to change? They're, they never really say that. Oh, more equality, less this, less that. It's a, it's a setup. They keep moving the goalposts. And once they get to a place where they have some degree of quote unquote equality, right, based on the Civil Rights Act and essentially decent prosperity for most Americans from the mid 60s up through the early 2000s, 
like that, you know, that, that heals a lot of wounds and there's a lot of like synergy and cross pollination. I mean, crying out loud, you have Aerosmith and, uh, uh, What's what, what, what's that group? The hip hop group, uh, doing uh, walk this way. I'm, I'm, I'm spacing out now, um, but you know you've got this crossover going on with like metal and rap. Sir mix a lot in metal church. You know it's kind of it's 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 kind of coming together, right? I mean that's the symbol of it. I think Chuck D did a thing with Anthrax. There was this weird thing with hip hop and metal. I was like, okay, well. And it was the BC Boys, I think it kind of started. Well, actually, the BC Boys come after it a little bit later. Um, so, but that's going on, right? That's happening. You have the show in Living Color, which even though the, the majority of the cast happens to be black, you also have, you know, some of the cast who's white, including Jim Carrey. So, I mean, this thing is happening during that time. And it reaches this apotheosis, and it's like, okay, we got to change that. Fast forward, Obama gets elected. We get the first quote unquote black president, although I'm not sure that's the case. And things get worse. It's like things get worse. And they're drumming up this whole idea of change, change, change. And change is a buzzword for revolution. And they're going to create this false reality, this simulacra of people being abused and oppressed and uh, at the wrong end of an interaction with the police. And it all starts with Trayvon Martin. And that all happens with Obama. And Black Lives Matter happens under Obama, right? So all these things take place with Obama. And from there, we're seeing where it's taken us and where we are now with it. Now you have people on the right or the alt-right who are, who are trying to call this stuff out now, just like Norman Potter. It's in his own intellectual um, sort of Neanderthal intellectual sort of way back in the 1960s when he wrote that book. So it's bizarre, right? Like, in, in a lot of ways, it's these same group of people and they're controlling one lane of the message and they're controlling the other lane of the message on the far left and the far right. So I want to play this clip with um, Potteritz, Midge Dector, and Charlie Rose. Looks like, I think, uh, I think Holly probably got confused. That's on me, by the way. Because I was the one who probably sent, I was the one who sent her the wrong time. So we'll try and get her back on in the future. At least if I can find this thing. Yeah, it's right here. Okay. Now, Charlie Rose. He got dispatched with, didn't he? They me tooed his ass. I'm going to start from the beginning here because he'll give you, um, it's only 21 minutes long. I'm not going to play the whole thing. I will play some of it. And there's a part that is essential to the point 
that I want to make and get across and talk about the social engineering of the neoconservatives. All right, let me play this thing. All right, so keep in mind, this is going to be Charlie Rose, Norman Potteritz, and his wife, uh, Midge Dector. And uh, away we go. Norman Potteritz and Midge Dector are here. They have been married for 46 years. Individually, they have each made their mark as leading voices in the world of conservative thought. Norman Potteritz served as the editor-in-chief of Commentary until 1995. His new book is called The Prophets, Who They Were, What They Are. Mitch Dector was formerly the executive editor of Harper's Magazine. Her memoir, An Old Wife's Tale, was published last year, is now out in paperback. I'm pleased to have them both at this table for the first time together. <laughs> and when I said to that to Norman, he said to me, I said, this will be great to have you together. He said, we'll see. <laughs> That's sort of, you know, you don't want to get outside of your expectations, do you? Let's talk a bit about the marriage for a second, then we'll talk about prophets and wives' tales. I mean, this has been characterized as marriage. Well, I would say it's been an extremely good marriage. Well, of course it's been And uh, we, uh, we began, apart from everything else, as best friends, and we've remained best friends, yeah. I, I think. And uh, my view is that, uh, that uh, you ought to marry someone you like as yeah. well as someone you love. Uh, very often you see married couples, and it's a, it's a great puzzle as to what they're doing together since they don't seem to like each other very much. It is amazing. To me. Yeah. You know, you go to restaurants and you'll see a couple and they don't talk to each other. Yes. They're having no yeah. conversation. Yeah. Well, it's said of us that we look like an unmarried couple at restaurants because <laughs> we're always talking our heads off. Yeah, it has a certain electricity and passion. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's because yes. what? You, the world of ideas has always been in the, in the well, or, well that sounds very elegant, it but does. it's really... Make, make it better for me. I, I'm sorry I said well, it. Well, I can, I can tell you that Norman always makes me laugh. Always has and still does. And, and that will go wonderful. a long way, won't it? That will go a very long way. <laughs> Who's had the most influence on the other? Have you changed him? Has he changed you? I would not undertake to answer it's that. Very, very, <laughs> very... Well, who very turned very to the... Can I say this? Who turned to the right first? Coming out of that yeah. left tradition yeah. in New York, you were both New York intellectuals, yeah. you know, who became part of something now called, for the rest of the world, neoconservatism. Yeah. Well, it's possible. I may have been a half step ahead, as they say in, in baseball, you know, yeah. but, but not much more than that. And, you know, we, we spend so much time talking about stuff, both personal and what we jokingly call civics, <laughs> that um, it's impossible in the end to disentangle who said what to whom yeah. and who influenced whom. So we moved pretty pretty much in tandem, as I said. I, I think Midge was a, a little more reluctant than I was at the beginning, but th that may be, um, I may be flattering to myself. To break the bonds of the left? Yeah. Well, I mean, when we broke those bonds, we lost virtually, well, not virtually, all our old friends. I mean... Uh, like whom? Well, uh, like uh, Jason Epstein, who was a very close friend of ours, and uh, his wife, his then wife, 
uh, like uh, Norman Mailer, like, um, well, I wrote a whole book called yeah. Ex-Friends, no, 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 also fine. another one called Breaking Ranks, in right. which I tried to describe all Both this. Both of the subjects we're talking I mean, about. If, yeah. if I were to list the names of all the friends we lost, it would take us till tomorrow. But basically <laughs> what they said is, you know, you're, you're, we, I can't abide your politics, and so therefore right. we can't be friends. Right. Well, what, they, what they actually said is, they said it to, someone said it to me. Norman has lost his mind, and uh, perhaps you ought to send him to a hospital or something. Norman has lost his mind. Yes, that's what they said because they because he changed his politics. They couldn't <clears throat> at that point. They couldn't conceive of anybody they knew and liked and so on yeah. arriving at such views. Were these tough times because these were old friends who you had dinner oh. with, who you believed had causes together? Boy, oh, yeah. they were oh, tough. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. And these even, were bonds even, that, were, yeah, these were that very, went beyond politics. Well, some of these some of these friendships were, in a certain sense, like marriages, and uh, the breakups were like uh, nasty divorces. And even in the case of um, certain friends uh, who uh, wanted to maintain cordial relations, as we did with them, it became very, very difficult. Because if you take ideas seriously, it it, um, it, it and you begin disagreeing about fundamental issues, not just politics, but life in general, it, it, it's very uncomfortable meeting because either you're going to fight all the time or you're going to bite your tongue sure. and avoid discussing the things that matter most. And after a while, people drift apart under those circumstances. Now, where was Pat Moynihan in all this? Well, <laughs> uh, Pat was uh, remained a very close friend. Um, as Pat was in those days um, uh, himself a neoconservative. Right. He kind of moved leftward after he got elected to the Senate. Uh, and Went from uh, serving in the Nixon uh, White House right. to being the Democratic senator from New York. Right, and uh, those of us who helped uh, get him elected had been expecting that he would pick up the mantle of Scoop Jackson and, yeah. and, and fight against the McGovernization of the Democratic Party, which he elected not to do once he was in office. Scoop Jackson was a pivotal figure in the thought. He was a very pivotal he figure. Was, he was a liberal Democrat in terms of social issues and a very anti-Soviet, anti-communist, uh, strong military Democrat. Right. And to begin with, we thought you could hold those two things mm -hmm. together. Actually, it became more and more difficult to do. Why? Well, it was the 1960s. You remember the yeah. 1960s? And a lot of other things came into it. Culture. I was there, Mitch. You were there, right. Um, culture came into it. How you brought up your kids came yeah. into it. What other people were saying to your kids came Values into it. Values came into it. Values came into it. All, all that stuff which really would probably have done something to Scoop Jackson himself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and then know. Richard Pearl was worked for Scoop Jackson, a whole lot of yes. people that were part yes, of even today right. shaping today's policy. Um, now, where was Bill Buckley in all this? Well, Buckley became a new friend. A new friend? Yes. Yeah. Only gradually, though. Uh, it's, it's curious about Buckley. The young Bill Buckley was much more to the right than the, than the Bill Buckley of later years, and he kind of moved leftward as some of us were moving rightward and we all kind of met somewhere right of center and uh, we've become very good friends in recent years let me turn to profits good <laughs> okay so i just wanted to share that with you 
And the reason why I wanted to share that with you is because does that sound familiar? Does that exchange sound familiar? What have people been going through for the last six years? Let's start with the election of Trump uh, in 2016, last six years. Starting with Trump, going through COVID, extreme polarization. The, the, the conversation they have with Charlie Rose about not being able to hang out with your old friends. Does that sound familiar? So here's, here's my take on it, is that the, the neoconservative mindset, and when you get into some of their values, like if I took you into, here, I'll show you, just so you know what I'm talking about. So I'm going to put um, Midge Dector so you can see her, uh, her Wikipedia page. And I can show you some of her books. They all go to the Jewish Theological Seminary too. Like they have to be conversant in, in the, uh, the culture and the symbols and the language, right? So look at some of her books. Losing the Battle, First Battle, Winning the War, um, The Liberated Woman and Other Americans, The New Chastity and Other Arguments Against Women's Liberation, Liberal Parents, Radical Children, An Old Wife's Tale, My Seven Decades in Love and War. But these, I mean, I don't know the, the, the full scope of the contents of these books, but based on their titles, I would say that she's anti-women's lib, that she's a traditionalist. You would look at this and go, oh, interesting. Well, I can relate to that. I relate to those values. But then you get into... Um, some of this other stuff, right? Together with Donald Rumsfeld, Dector is the co-chair of the Committee for the Free World and one of the original champions of the neoconservative movement with her spouse, Norman Podhoritz. And she's also founder of the Independent Women's Forum and was a founding treasurer for the Northcote Parkinson Fund founded by and chaired by John Train, She's a member of the board, trustees of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I think, isn't James O'Keefe connected to the Heritage Foundation? I think he is. She's also a board member for the Center for Security Policy and the Claire Booth Luce Fund. She's also a member of the Philadelphia Society, and she was a time, it's, for a time, its president. Following a tongue-in-cheek remark, and this is, a, this is an important one here, Following a tongue-in-cheek remark by Russell Kirk, the society's founder, about the prevalence of Jewish intellectuals in the neoconservative movement, Dechter labeled Kirk an, an anti-Semite. So this is like, this is just this strange hybrid of these neoconservative values, which are, are for all intents and purposes, very conservative. Like they are making a clear break from their ideological brethren. Of course, 
their ideological brethren at that time also happened to be Jewish New York intellectuals. You mentioned Norman Mailer as one of them. So they make this break, but at the same time, like it's got an asterisk. You know, that goes back to that quote that uh, Himmelfarb, who I believe is Irving Crystal's wife, it goes back to that quote, like, yeah, you can talk about these, you know, you can have absolute truth. It's, a, it's essential. And, and free speech is the, uh, you know, the carrier of absolute truth. It is, it, you know, flies the flag for absolute truth. But then you make a distinction or, or an observation that the head of the neoconservative movement tends to be Jewish intellectuals. You just make an observation, and now the guy who's the founder of the foundation that she's in, she labels him an anti-Semite. I mean, it, it, it's extreme. Couldn't she just have said something a little bit different? And you, and you could say, well, I'd like to accuse you of anti-Semitism, but I'll take that as a compliment instead. Like, she could have handled it that way. But she didn't. She just came right out and you know, when ad hominem on him, which is not really uncommon, right? So it's this weird blend of these values and standing up for things that nobody else is standing up for, speaking out against the encroachment of the left, the Sovietization of the United States government. He talks about <clears throat> the McGovern Democrats. And so then they migrate into this hawk policy and they line up with the military industrial complex. And it's really the kids of Crystal and Potteritz and Kagan that do the big damage. Like the, the three fathers are the ideological um, prophets of neoconservatism. It's the children who are the ones that make the connections with the military industrial complex and begin to build those ideological bridges between neoconservatism, the military industrial complex and the various branches of the military itself. Even to the point where Kimberly Kagan, here, I'll show you Kimberly Kagan. And by the way, I, I, you know, if a woman can teach war history or whatever, I don't, I don't really, I, I, it's like, if you can do it, do it. I'm not here to say, well, she's a woman and she can't do this. But she winds up teaching war history and strategy at West Point. Number one, she's never been in a war. She's probably never seen anybody die in combat or had to kill anybody, but it's through her policy and her strategy, along with her husband right there, who is Fred Kagan, that's them in Iraq. They're the ones that are essentially drumming up 
the neocon strike first strategy that comes out of 9-11. These are the architects of the regime change, and she's one of them. And she goes to West Point and starts to, oh, there they are. Is that them there? Are they in there? She goes to West Point and starts teaching American generals. Here we go. A flicker. ISW, Institute for the Study of War, welcomes General John R. Allen, U.S. Marine Corps, former commander, International Security Alliance Force, blah, 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 blah. And here she is, Dr. Kimberly Kagan. I'm having a little bubbly there, are we? A little wine. So what happened here is that you have the neoconservatives who are hawks. They're hawks. And they're so hawkish that they are very much into this idea of regime, regime change, first strike and aggression. And that policy, as it relates to this country, was not embraced for a very long time. And yeah, sure, we did. We tried to do regime changes. You go back to what was going on with the CIA in Angola in the 1970s, because I mean, they had Marxism. The Angolans were, you know, they were courting Marxism, and and uh, they were bringing Fidel Castro's troops from Cuba over there, and they wanted to keep. Africa from being communists, right? They wanted them to keep from being Marxists. So they sent John Stockwell over with a bunch of other uh, CIA people to try to drum up support for, you know, the anti-Cuban uh, uh, forces in Angola. And they got their asses kicked in Angola, unfortunately. Um, so, it wasn't like we were really into regime change. Clearly, there has been, you know, those machinations. But that was really more along the lines of regime protection. Like, they just didn't want Angola to flip and go to the Marxists and go to the Cubans. So it wasn't really like it was regime change. It wasn't like Iraq or Afghanistan. So the United States' doctrine for almost ever had been, well, if we are transgressed, then we will engage in defending our fill-in-the-blank, our interests, our resources, our, our land, our people. But it was based on transgression and defense. It was not based on offense. And when 9-11 came around, that all changed. And they changed it to being aggressive and moving the uh, war ideology and philosophy <clears throat> to first strike philosophy. And that's what we saw everything. Everything we're seeing now, for the most part, although you do have some sneaky regime changes, like Yemen is a sneaky regime change because they're using the Saudis as a proxy army. But everything we've seen since 9-11 has been about a clear threat, anticipating the threat and eliminating the threat, which is very different. 
And it's the neocons who are able to articulate this. So they become the intellectual head of the military industrial complex. And this is what the military industrial complex is waiting for. Somebody who can intellectually, socially, and culturally justify regime changes and wars so they can make more money, so they can have more weapons, so that their economic interests grow in tandem with this other group. So they found their talking heads. And that's where this marriage comes together. And it's a very different marriage than, say, the social Marxists and, um, say, Black America. Because that's another arrangement, right? It's a different kind of arrangement. But the social Marxists have used Black America, but to some extent, um, Brown America, as their foot soldiers in their revolutionary fight against the system. And they have, just look at the NAACP. So the military industrial complex needed to have their own version of this and it became the neocons and they loved them because theoretically they stood for all these values that were supposedly American, but there was a distinct difference in those values. Number one, they weren't decidedly Christian values. You may say, well, you don't have to be a Christian. And that's true because the values of the Declaration of Independence and even in the Constitution up to a certain point are more about universal rights and freedom, although they do mention, you know, you know endowed to us by the creator. I'm assuming that the creator is, the, is God and not Lucifer, right? I'm assuming that. So there, there, there is some of that that's baked into uh, the Declaration of the Independence. But there is a separation of church and state, and you're allowed to express yourself freely, freedom of speech. You don't necessarily have to be a theist. You, know, you can be an agnostic or you can be an atheist. But if you wrap your arms around these values... They're the organizing principle that connects you to enough people so that you can agree on these things. So what happens is that when the Potterets revolution starts, along with the Kagan revolution, the Crystal revolution, and these Jewish intellectuals who'd been on the left move to the right, and they move to the right also because they see power shifting. They see the failure of the 60s. They see the failure of any candidate emerge from the 60s and the whole democratic process that, well, looks and sounds like Scoop Jackson. They're not there. They've all been kind of McGovernized. So they look to the right and they go, okay, well, we had Nixon and they were there. They were there when Nixon got, got elected, both the first time and the second time. And they were kind of hanging around with Ford. They're not around with Carter, though. Carter's bad for business. Carter is connected to that other school of liberalization, although he did boycott the Soviet Olympics in 1980. 
But Jimmy Carter is way more of a, he is not a neocon by any stretch. So they're kind of out of business there for about four years, but they sure as hell make sure it's, it's not going to be another four years. I can tell you that right now because they drum up this Iran-Contra thing and Elliot Abrams gets involved and Elliot Abrams is related to the Kagan family. And Elliot Abrams is a regime changer. So they're going to make sure that the first regime they're going to change is the fucking Carter regime and that he's not going to get back in office because he's bad for business. Carter is anti-war. He's anti-war. And even though he has this weird little boycott with Russia or the Soviet Union, he's pretty much pro-Sino-American relations. Not mistaken, I think, Maybe it's, maybe it's post Carter, a big, like a big thing in the Sino quote unquote American relations is the Billy Joel concert in Russia. Like when that happens, that's like a sea change. And it's like, oh, wow. Well, the Russians are letting the West in and the Russians are thinking, oh, okay, well, We'll throw, we'll throw people a few, a few bones here by allowing them to have some entertainment. So that happens after Carter, but, but they make sure that Carter's not coming back. And their fingerprints, I'm pretty certain, are all over that Iran-Contra thing. Because, you know, you've got people like Don Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney and Roger Stone. They're all behind the scenes. And they had been empowered. The Cheney and Rumsfeld and Roger Stone had been around during the Nixon administration. And they were kind of hanging around a little bit in the Ford administration, a little bit. But by the time Carter's there, they're gone. Carter cans a bunch of people from the CIA, kind of pulls a Kennedy, and he's in deep trouble. So they make sure he's not coming back. They get Reagan in. What happens with Reagan? Hello, neocons. They're back in business again, and they're really they're really in business with Reagan. You have four, eight years of Reagan, four years of Bush. It's twelve years. You get eight years of Clinton, and Hillary Clinton's a freaking neocon. She's a warmonger. You look at all the shit that that the Americans disturbed during that period of time. The only thing they didn't do is Bill Clinton didn't go back into Iraq. He did sanctions. He had no fly zone, but that was about it. And they wanted him to go back into Iraq. They wanted him to finish off what, what Bush had started. And of course, there's the connection between the Bushes and the Clintons. So they're they're getting, you know, they're getting another eight years of neoconservatism. And then they get another eight years with Bush. Easy. And they're there in 1998. They are putting everything together for a project for the new American century, a clear break, the Patriot Act, they're working on all that shit. They're working on all of it so that when 9-11 happens, it's ready to go, they roll it out, and we have been thrust into their universe and their world and their social order ever since then. A brief period there with Trump where they're not as visible as they had been, although John Bolton was there and Potteritz supported Trump, much to the consternation of 
the Crystal family who dropped out of that race, but is now back engaged in background with uh, McCain, with, uh, McCain, with Biden, right? So they've been in the fold for a while. And it's the kids who've built this bridge between the military industrial complex and being the intellectual voice for their incursions that have been the game changer and not a good game changer. But if you look at that and go back to that conversation, where have we been since 2016? Americans have been having the same conversation that Norman Potteritz and his wife Midge Decker were having with their friends. So what does that mean? Does it mean that this is the natural course of things? that people who have a very strong set of opinions and beliefs as it relates to the social order and politics, that when there's a break and other people don't see the same world in the same way, that they're naturally going to disassociate from that former group? Is that what happens? Or is what happened a byproduct of the neocon and the neoliberal mindset being implanted into the American population so that Americans would evolve along these polarized lines? Is that what, was that what really happened? Was the whole thing either an intentional or unintentional social program to create more polarization, because that's exactly what it did. You know, Americans suffered the same social breakup that Norman Potteritz and his wife did in the late 60s and early 70s, when all of a sudden they're looking around going, eh, I don't really dig where this is going. And by the way, these other people are really, they're much more connected to the army and they're much more connected to power. The liberals want to be doves. They don't want to make war. They just want to pacify the Soviets, right? So they hitched their wagon to the war wagon. And it's these two ideologies that really become very polarizing. Because in and of themselves, they've even become more extreme. You know, you get you get the far right and the alt-right, which is the extreme version of the paler conservatives and neocons. And you get the far left with people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Rachel Tlaib, right? These are the, these are the communists, the social Marxists. And so, and so they've cultivated this really, really disparate polarity. And what's weird is that the people ideologically, who represent that polarity, they originally come out of the same group. And then when it's important or essential that they unhitch their wagon for a while, like what Bill Crystal did when Trump got elected, they'll do that. And they don't care. They ultimately don't care. Look at Vicki Newland. She doesn't care. She was there with uh, Bush. She was there with Obama. She's back again with Biden. She wasn't there with Trump, but there she is again. They don't. So when you get into the neocon mindset, like all of a sudden it begins to mutate and merge with like 
Obama is kind of a classic neoliberal. He comes out of Chicago and he's schooled by Frank Marshall Davis and Bill Ayers. These are radical lefties. But yet he's able to embrace people like Vicki Newland and Hillary Clinton who are freaking hawks. And they want war because they know that war is good. War equals change. War equals profit. War allows them to also polarize a nation. Where are we now? Well, you're either with Ukraine or against Ukraine. And if you're with Putin and Russia, well, you're fucked, especially politically. You can't be anti, you can't be anti-Ukraine now politically. And what's interesting is I I'm guessing that the neocons are, you know, public and on the record about their support for the Ukrainians. Because that's their homeland. That's where they're from. And they don't they don't like what happened to Russia and they didn't like getting kicked out. They didn't like getting kicked out of their former homeland. So this is, I think it's a, a, to me, it's an interesting topic because you can see the, uh, the genesis of it, the roots of it right in that conversation. So I'm not sure if I'm still Twitter friends with, um, Amanda Milius, who's John Milius's daughter. Uh, I was for a while, but she doesn't show up on my Twitter feed that much anymore. So I think it was last year when they had this little dust up in uh, Gaza with uh, Hamas and the Shine or whatever. And there was all this public support for Israel and this outcry against you know, the terrorist Palestinian, you know, groups and people. And Amanda Milius went nuts. She went totally fucking nuts. I watched her go nuts on Twitter. She was, she was aggro. So and John Milius is her father. And John Milius is the guy who wrote and directed Red Dawn. He wrote Conan, the movie uh, Conan, the Barbarian. He wrote and directed that, if I'm not mistaken. That's his movie. So Milius is hardcore. He wrote Apocalypse Now. He wrote, uh, he had parts of the script of Dirty Harry. I think he, I think he came up with the uh, make my day line. So they have a warring spirit. I mean, the, 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 these neocons have a warring spirit and they engage in conflict they engage in confrontation. But really what they do is they engage in conflict and confrontation in the realm of ideas. You don't really find them on the front lines. No, they'll go find somebody else to do that. That's, that's, the, that's the army. And by the way, I think this new spending bill that was just this huge fucking spending bill that is being allocated to Ukraine, how was it, like $14 billion? Fourteen billion dollars. What do you? How do you think fourteen billion dollars would feel to American businesses that have been really taking it in the shorts? What about a fourteen billion dollar gas credit to the American people? Guess what? Yeah, I know petroleum prices are high. The world is tough, and just like when you couldn't go to work during COVID, and we gave you little bit of stimulus money. 
we're going to give you a gas credit to get through this time. Everybody is going to get a check for $2,000. And you can put that to your gas, your home, whatever, until we sort this out. Wouldn't be that hard, would it? They managed to do it for COVID, but they won't do it now. And they certainly won't allow that money to be used without any strings or hooks attached to businesses, entrepreneurs, people that are really on the ropes. 15 billion could go a long way, but what they do is they send it over to Ukraine and then what happens? It eventually filters back to them. It's a money laundering scheme. That's why it doesn't come to us. So there's no, it's, it's really what they call a false equivalence. We can't even, we can't even, you know, say the two um, connections or the two, what is it? Uh, correlation doesn't meet causation or whatever. These are two different things, apples and oranges, because they're moving the money into Ukraine so they can get it back. It's like, okay, well, let's go hire some mercenaries. Um, let's go protect those bio labs. And I think, isn't Russia uh, going to bring the evidence of the bio labs to the UN today? I think that's, I don't, again, I don't trust Putin. I don't trust any of this. Uh, Putin, even though he got his little webpage removed from the World Economic Forum, like Klaus Schwab said, uh, you know, there's no fourth industrial revolution without Russia. There's no great reset without Russia. Putin, of course, has also sung the praises of Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. So I don't really don't buy that Russia is this completely liberating force, although sometimes they may do some things that look like that. Apparently, they found a shitload of tunnels there, and there's you know corroboration. It's not just you know some kind of you know speculation from the Q realm. Okay, I know you're hungry. This is the hungry attention right here. This is not hey, I'm on the show. This is the hey, feed my ass attention. Um, yeah, so I guess we're gonna find out. This whole thing is a mess. It's a mess. And they are using this as, again, this slow motion demolition. We're, we're, we're watching this controlled demolition happen in real time. And we're in the economic phase. Now, they could bring back hemorrhagic fever or, you know, who knows? Maybe what the Russians might have done might have put a pump the brakes on the next contagion. I don't know. And if anybody thinks they know, you're probably, you know, doing your daily dose of, of hopium or, or whatever. If you think you know, I don't think, I, I think you may want to rethink knowing what you know. Because I, you know, I listen to a lot of, a lot of other people, a lot of whom you probably don't even know. But some of the things that really resonate with me, and these are really bright, switched on, very strategic people who understand the global chessboard, is that if you think you really know what's going on, you better just step back and watch this thing. Because there are allegiances and alliances and deals, and there are all these different combinations that are spinning right now. And they can spin it one way, they can spin it another way, they can spin it. So they could have 
four or five different versions of a new world order and a world that can, it doesn't have to look one way. Trust me, they have all these different models that they can roll out, just like they had all these different variants or all these different versions of the mRNA vaccine. There were different versions. And so they can, it doesn't have to be one version or one variant of the Great Reset. They could have about four or five. They could have the, you know, Russia, China becomes the new model for the Great Reset. And they wind up essentially, you know, doing a number to uh, NATO and Europe and doing a number to the United States. So you have Russia and China and India, the whole BRICS team, you know, they become the template for the fourth industrial revolution, the Great Reset. They can run it that way. They can run it with every uh, country in the world being so close to annihilation that uh, they wind up having some form of formal agreement and global governance so that it never happens again. Like the 11th hour, 59 minutes, 59 seconds. And then everybody just goes, oh God, we could have been there. But the UN comes in, saves the day, and now we have this treaty, which says we can never do it again. We have to shake each other's hands. We have to hug, and there we are. That's a version. Then there is the kind of the NATO European version with the United States involved, and they have that version, right? So they, there's a lot of different versions that they can roll out towards one end and one goal. They can decimate everything and rebuild everything from the ground up. You know, no economy, no, no production, right? It all goes away and it all goes away as a result of massive damage to infrastructure, which is what happened in World War II. They can spin it that way. So if you think you know what's going on, you're, you, you may want to rethink that. And they can even have different versions of the new world order for different places, which is what Henry Kissinger talked about. So it may look one way in China, another way in Russia, another way in the United States, but it's all part of a one world order. Now, is there a version where it doesn't work out? Sure. Clearly there's a version of that. And that's when we get into astrology, we get into Aquarius where Aquarius doesn't, it doesn't always, it's not predictable. So it looks like it's going to go one way and then all of a sudden things go sideways and then it goes another way and whatever they intended. Like the ultimate thing is, okay, well, we're going to start the new world order and it's going to be run by the World Economic Forum. It's going to be the Great Reset and the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And this is how it's going to go. And this is how it's going to unfold. And then really what happens is that they bring in the Aquarian age as a result of it. People wake up, they're more enlightened, they're more together. They have found communal bonds. Um, as a result of those communal bonds, there's an opportunity for the spirit of God to move into everyday interactions through compassion, empathy, understanding the virtues of truth and freedom and all those things, right? And they're all a byproduct of this other thing that they're trying to force on us. That could happen. 
that can easily happen. So there's not an absolute end game here for any of this, except for one. And that end game ultimately is for everything to return to a, a whole or macro state. That, that is the one thing that you can count on. And why? Because that's where we started. And in a lot of ways, that's where we are now. We're, we're still in the whole of macro state. We just, we've been so um, socially engineered and, and hacked and divided that we don't understand that really we are living, you know, in this garden of Eden. It's right in front of us. We, it's just, we can't, we can't cognate it because of this so-called separation. But let's just say we started off in that place, in that macro place where we were whole, we were theoretically one, one group, even though that group may have been very diverse. We like to talk about this idea of Tartaria uh, being some, at least in my mind, uh, some kind of vision of, you know, you know, I would say uh, ethnic diversity, what's what we would call it but also connected in a way that is different and more unified. So we might even have some examples of that in our stolen history, but let's just say for the sake of this you know, concept that it does relate to this group of people, right? These root races who at one point in time were together and connected under this dome of wholeness or oneness. And then what happens is then that begins to separate out. And we theoretically, you know, leave that place. And it's through this idea of temptation and believing that we are God that leaves us out of that place. And that's the Luciferic temptation. And so through that, we we become individualized and we become separated but ultimately the the journey is to move back to that macro place to 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 move into what ray kurzweil and the transhumanists would call the singularity the singularity is the atheistic techno wet dream version of returning to god Right, that's what it is. And so what they want to do is they want to create this alternate version of that because we're headed to that. Like that's ultimately our spiritual timeline. And to have this idea of being an individual in an individual consciousness, but at the same time having this greater consciousness where we understand our relationship to the whole. I mean, that's theoretically the, the, the great and grand design of the physical incarnation and in the material world lesson on earth, right? That ultimately we do this thing that can't be done anywhere else in the universe. Supposedly that's how it's supposed to work. And so we return to that state, but it's not like, well, we're just completely engaged in this unknowing oneness, even though I look different from you and you look different from me. It, it doesn't really matter. No, we've gone through the differentiation phase. And Jung would call it individuation. 
and that we would have to spiritually individuate and come back together again. And that's, that's on the books. And what they want to do is they want to create a different variant of that. So they have these things like the new world order or the great reset or the singularity, because they want to, they want to manage that. They want to stage manage where we're headed and we're headed there and they're doing everything in their power to make sure that that doesn't happen. And this is where we are right now. So I guess the thing to do is to somehow affirm that that's where we're headed. And I know it's challenging now because in a lot of ways our world is ending and our world was already ending. It was, it was, it, it started to end uh, in uh, 2020 when uh, COVID came around, it was the end done. Everything here now is kind of this weird interregnum where there's things that are still familiar like sports, but they're not the same. They're clearly not the same as they were, and they won't be the same. And they may not even be the same moving forward. We're in this interregnum period. So we're not quite in the new yet, but it's coming, right? It's coming. And it, you know, it's all about what the new is going to be. So hang in there. Um, don't despair. Uh, do your best to cultivate a sense of faith and understand that there's a much bigger plan for you and me and each and every one of us. And that's the, that's the part that we need to adhere to. And I, and I also feel like we have to have these discussions about the people that create or so-called create the reality that we, we in, inhabit and share together. We have to talk about them because it's important. We need to know who the players are and we need to understand the machinations behind it. It doesn't mean that we have to, how do I say this? Um, see that what they've done has this ultimate outcome and that this is how it's going to be. It's not necessarily a fatalistic approach, but I think it's important because in a lot of ways it disempowers their end game. And it disempowers our end game by empowering you to understand what some of the machinations are behind the scenes. All right. I think I'm done for today. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get um, Holly, but I hope she comes back. Right? It was just me and you, Rosie. Let me check in with you guys. Let me see where you're at. Where'd you go? Here we are. Okay. Uh, let's see. The 82 World's Fair ended only two weeks before I was born, miles from my birth town. Uh, let's see what else we have here. This planet is so toxic, polluted, the plastic, the drugs, the water, et cetera, et cetera. How can the next generation survive and thrive? That's a great question, Charles. I don't have the answer to that. Um, I didn't know Aquarius are unpredictable. That makes me, it makes sense since I'm 29 Aquarius. Oh boy. I suspect Mr. P had a change of heart. Uh, retelling the WF party line. Maybe. I just don't know. I mean, he's got a 12th house son. 
Ursula von der Leyen is obsessed with building a European army. Uh, you know what? Doesn't surprise me. And based on this idea of prophecy, good to see you, Lark. Uh, based on this idea of prophecy, William is supposed to lead that army. And as a result of that, he becomes sort of the de facto antichrist. Right. All right. Thanks for being here. I appreciate you. I appreciate your support. Uh, I appreciate the, the time that I'm able to share with you because it helps me stay sane, allows me to piece things together and think things through and gives me an opportunity to share those things with you. And Friday, I really like talking to other people uh, because I talk a lot. But uh, next Friday, next Friday, you will meet Gen Z in all of its ragged glory. I'll be, uh, I'll be broadcasting from Port Aransas next week. How about that? Spring break, Port Aransas. The testosterone will be flowing. Keep your eye out for that. All right, I'll be back Sunday night over on the 11th house. Use your head in order to serve what's real, your heart to stay open what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Here's Rosie. She's not the astrological cat. What should we call Rosie? I'll leave that up to you. Bye for now. Take care. Uh, hang, uh, have a good 311. And we'll see you on Sunday night.